0: How good does that sound? That is the sweet sound of an escape to the bush. Welcome. You're listening to the Bush Wanderlust podcast with hosts Ali Smith and Katie Watson. Buckle in
1: as these two birds from the bush take you on a road trip. Around the Narrabri region in northwest New South Wales.
0: Ali and Katie will introduce you to the lovable locals.
1: Everyone is really down to earth and so welcoming.
0: Just call in and enjoy yourself. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. And explore all the magnificent wonders right here in Australia's backyard. He's, He's a big sucker, 10 to 15 centimetres long and bright pink. They're just a fascinating animal, you know. Who would put a pink slug on top of a mountain? As the locals say, just you, 5 million stars, a mountain range
2: and a yowie. It's time to hit the road.
1: In today's episode, Katie and I have stopped by a shearing shed out the back of Bogabry to meet one of the Narrabri region's most colourful characters. Shearer, an epic fundraising legend, Cole Mad Dog Gillum. It's pretty hard yak and mad dog looking at it. How yep. long have you been doing this for?
0: Uh, 50-odd years. <laughs> do you love it? <laughs> love it. Why, yeah. why do you love it? Why did
1: you become
0: a shearer? Uh oh, I was very young when I was married and you had to make a living, so... Yeah, I wasn't real smart, but shearing was pretty good money all the time, and, yeah, so I took to the shearing Said, Yeah, this wool will be used for jumpers, and a good marina wool like that down there will be used for suits.
2: Mad Dog's hometown Bogabri is best known as the little town with the big heart. And there's no bigger heart than Mad Dogs. He's raised truckloads of money for charity in wild, wacky and wonderful ways. From conquering the challenge of a 40-hour Shearathon to walking 40 kilometres wearing 74 bras (laughs) to raise money for cancer sufferers and much more.
1: The locals don't call him Mad Dog for nothing. Welcome to the Bush Wanderlust podcast, Mad Dog. Thank you. First question I've got to ask, where did you get the nickname Mad Dog?
0: Um, an old mate of mine, Dougie Cascart, known as Galeer, He christened me that long, long time ago when I was playing a game of football against Wewall He just said, look at him, he's like a mad dog.
1: Was it the style of how you were playing or?
0: Probably. <laughs> Probably the style.
1: <laughs> Your temperament seems so soft and quiet. But does your personality change on the football field? <laughs> oh,
0: they reckon it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you been sent off a few times?
0: Yeah, I've been sent off um, 29 times in 30 years, twice in one game once. Wow. But it was never my fault.
1: What did you do, Mad Dog?
0: Oh, the referee reckoned I spat my chewing gum at him in disgust and I didn't. And then a fight broke out so I run back on. He said, "Number twelve. It was a hooker in those days." He said, "I sent you off. Get off it anyway." The judiciary found me not guilty of the first offence, but guilty of running back on. So they gave me four weeks rest, <laughs> which I probably need.
1: Who were you playing for, Mad Dog? <laughs>
0: Bogabri. Bogabri against Weevil. Who won? Oh, can't remember. <laughs>
2: <laughs> probably Bogabri. You've done so many wild and wonderful things for charity. What was it that initially inspired you to start fundraising?
0: I think it was um, I'd lost a son when he was 16 and at that time my first marriage was sort of not going real good. So after my son got killed, I went downhill a bit and well, you sort of think it's the end of the world or something. I don't know. Anyway, I got myself together and thought, I've got to do something for other people, get get out of this rut I'm in. And there was a lot of needy people out there and I was going really good compared to a lot of people, you know. So I just thought I'd do some stupid things for people, for charities and that sort of thing. And once it started, well, there was sort of no stopping it. It <laughs> just kept going.
1: There is no stopping you, Mad Dog.
0: Oh, I think age will stop me, or date of birth, they call it, these days.
1: No, still (laughs) young and fit. Tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you've done for charity and did you come up with all the ideas yourself?
0: Yeah, I come up with the ideas myself. Like I pushed a little boy in a wheelchair from Bogabri to Gundar and he wanted to be King of Gundar, so whoever raised the most money got to be King of Gunnadar, so he asked me to push him in this wheelchair, which was fairly solid going, and, and since the poor little fella has passed on, but I'll never forget these big semi-trailers coming at us, and I said to him, I said, mate, are you right with these semi-trailers? And he just said, shut up and push. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. But, well, he, he inspired me so, and he wanted me to do it, so you had to do it. You couldn't say, no, I'm not doing it. And um, with the bras, when I wore the bras, that was for breast cancer and the, there was a big night at the Bogabri RSL, I think, that night. So I wore the bras, you know, 70-something bras, and it started raining and I'll tell you what, them bras get heavy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome to the life of a woman, man. <laughs>
0: Uh, And then what else do we have? Oh, push the wheelbarrow from Bogabri to Narrabri for Relay for Life. And someone said, what do you got in the wheelbarrow? I said, money. That's all I wanted was get money in the wheelbarrow. I think we got about 7,000 donations just from people along the road. How far is
2: it from Bogabri to Narrabri for those people who don't know?
0: About 60 kilometres.
2: It's a fair push.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it was pretty good. I've done coal shoveling. For that, might have been for breast cancer too. Me and another bloke shoveled a ton of coal each at a race. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you know how much money you've raised for Charity Matter? Oh,
0: no, not not really, but it'd be, might be 130,000, something like that, I suppose. Well done. I don't know if anyone's ever kept track of it. I think the bit when I swam the river, we only made $300.
1: Still every cent council.
0: Yeah, that's right. That was for a couple of comfortable chairs for the oldies at the hospital in Bogabri. all those years ago. That was a long time ago.
1: It's nice that it's, a lot of it is going back into the community.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that I always rather do. I'm a big believer in putting it back into your community. And when I say community, North West is, for me, our community. And I like to see it go to people who need it in that area. I think too much money that's raised goes to just out of the area and you never see it.
1: You are very humble and I assume you're probably pretty dismissive of accolades. You have been recognised but have you always been a giver?
0: Well like I said uh, early um, when I lost my son I think that's when I I really did. I've always sort of helped people all my life but yeah, I was getting down, and I wanted to do something, get out of the rut I was in. So I thought I'll go to helping people, and it, it worked. It was because there's people out there that are worse off than what we ever are. Like we think we're bad off or whatever, and there's always someone worse off than you.
1: How long ago was it that you started doing the charity fundraisers?
0: Well, it was probably in the early '90s when I done the first one, which was a I rode a stick horse from. Bride at Barn Bar one night at midnight. That was to raise money for the Pony Club. The kids were going to ride along the railway line on the Sunday morning, and I said, "I'll ride a stick horse down to Barn Bar now." That when the pub shut, so that was my first thing <laughs> that I done. We didn't make much money, but we had a lot of fun.
1: Where did your donations roll in from?
0: Oh, just from different people in the pub, like that. Ah, oh, you won't make it to Barn Bar, that sort of thing. So. Anyway, I made the barn bar, and bar and when I come back they said what are you gonna do next? And I said I'll swim from bridge to bridge, which is Boston Street Bridge to the Iron Bridge in about six kilometres. And they said, Yeah, when are you gonna do that? In the summertime? I said, No, I'll do it on the twenty sixth of July. Six o'clock in the morning. Make it a bit tougher going.
1: In the middle of winter.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it was pretty cold. Real cold. I think it was a Hardest and probably the most stupidest thing I've done. But anyway, when I swam that river, I used a full hot water system, like 40-something litres of hot water to thaw out. Afterwards? I got home in the shower. I end up under the hot water until it got cold.
1: Mad dog, you just go back for more.
0: (laughs) Then I went and played football that afternoon.
1: (laughs) Everything you've done, though, I should ask, comes straight from the heart and at times has probably come from a pretty personal place as well in terms of fundraising for MS. Will you share with listeners a little bit more about your drive for for fundraising?
0: Yeah, well, the MS Shearathon, that was my daughter was diagnosed with MS and I thought, well, I better do something for the MS in Gundah. So we decided we'd do a 24-hour Shearathon. I don't really know how it got into my head to do it, but I thought, I'll do it. Anyway, we'd we'd done that. The people that done the hard work were people like my wife Deb and the organisers and the Lions Club who were the main men behind it and all my brothers and nephews and friends who built the shearing Shed. Mm. When I think back, there was so much work went into it like you look at all the work that was there for a week before it happened and then a few days after it happened, getting the sheep organised and all the carting like my brother's truck and Kevin Shields for the 40-hour one later on. But there's just so many people involved. It was amazing how the whole town just come together and done, done what, what had to be done to raise the money. And we raised $42,000 for that MS. Mm.
1: Well done.
0: The butcher across the road, he was cutting up steaks and that for us. And he went home, I don't know, about 10 o'clock and had to ring the poor bugger up at 3 o'clock and get him back in to cut more steaks up. No one went home. They just stayed there eating steaks and sausages and all night.
2: And cheering you on.
0: Yeah, it was unbelievable. Mm.
2: And so you did the 24 hour sheerathon and then you went back for more and then decided to do a 40 hour shearathon. How much um, longer after that did you decide to do the 40 hour?
0: Uh, two years. Two <clears> years
2: <throat> later. So you'd recovered from oh, the first? <laughs> yeah, well, the
0: first one, it, it was just so, so easy. I thought it would be harder, but. It was pretty easy and then I thought I'll I'll do a week's work in straight. Instead of putting a week into five days, I'll just do it straight. Thursday night, (laughs) Friday, Friday night, knock off at dinner time, Saturday. So we got talking again, righto, we'll build a shed. So this time it was at the RSL Club and it was unbelievable, massive. And um, one Marty Brennan donated sheep and and Murray Watson donated I think seven right, 700 sheep or might have been 800. Kevin Shields got his B double truck and carted them and yeah it was just unbelievable the work that went into that.
1: There's not much you wouldn't do for charity it would seem mad dog you live up to your name but what you've touched on I guess is a community's a regional community's ability to rally and to help other people. I'd love you to tell me a little bit about that what it's like to have a community behind you because we don't have services on our doorstep. Has it been quite heartwarming to have the support?
0: Oh, terrific. Yeah, unbelievable. Like that 40-hour one, it was um, for, not for me, niece, but she was the one that inspired me to do it, my great niece actually, because she had um, a cancer and she was only very young and she was getting flown to Sydney Oh, you know, every month for treatment. And I thought we've got to do something for kids with cancer. So uh Mike Barney who was Angel Flight and I just thought, well, we'll split it split the money up. So we had third for kids with cancer, third for Angel Flight, and a third went to We Narrabri, Gundam, Gundar and Bogabri hospitals. Yeah, that particular one we raised sixty three thousand, I think it was in that 40 hours
1: oh my god we had a big
0: auction at the end of it most of it was donated like it was an amazing thing to drive down the street and see the shearing shed getting built out the back of the club and then in two days time you're in that shearing shed and it was just like it was just like a normal shearing shed three stand shearing shed and it was just full on like and people everywhere and there's just so much organisation that you don't realise. Like what I was doing, it was easy. But everybody else and the hours they put in, and yeah, terrific little community, amazing community. And they all get behind it. Like, I doubt if there'd have been anyone in their houses that weekend. They'd have all been there that year or so, and there was no trouble. There was no, wouldn't have needed police anywhere near town because everybody was there to support and yeah.
1: How many sheep did
0: you shear? I think it was nearly 800, which isn't, it was never about how many sheep, it was just about keeping going really, that's what it was about. But it was pretty good effort because I'm not a real fast shearer.
2: (laughs) But you're still upright, you can still
1: walk, (laughs) Mad Dog. (laughs) I don't know
2: how. (laughs) Mad Dog, so Bogabra is your hometown as you've touched on. What made you come to Bogabry and what made you stay?
0: I was born and bred there. The only time I left was to away um, shearing. Yeah, it's just a great community, great place to live.
1: How would you describe Boggabri to people that haven't been there? You know, there's beautiful historic buildings. Mm. Dripping Rock attracts <coughs> a lot of tourists.
0: There is a lot to see. Like you say, you've got Dripping Rock. You've got the Drovers Campfire in um, April every year when it's not Coronavirus. You've got Gin's Leap, which is a beautiful lookout. You can walk up there and see for miles and miles. You've got the cotton when it's in full swing, they do tours and one of the best things in Bogabro which a lot of people wouldn't know it's there is a big girl and daddy bull shed which is only two K out of town. It was thirty four stand shed when it was in full swing. It's on private property so people wouldn't be able to just go out there but it's an amazing building. It's falling down a lot of it. Yeah, it's something that very special to me.
1: Well, yeah, I think shearing sheds hold so much. They're steeped in history, really. And they're grand old buildings, some of them.
0: Mm. Well, this one, all the timber in it was cut on the property off the hill, and some of the some of the logs in it are massive.
2: Probably the biggest event or one of the biggest attractions in Bogabri is the drovers' campfire. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, Draver's Campfire originated with the Lions Club. In the first one, I think we had about 20 caravans. Over the last few years, it's got up to probably 500.
2: Which is a big influx for a small town like Bogabri.
0: And they start to come in a week before, at least a week before, and they don't leave until probably the Wednesday after it's over. Like the main three days are Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but there is entertainment and tours and all that sort of thing for nearly a full week, cotton farms, and they go to shearing sheds and where they go to yards where people are doing cattle work or sheep work, and um really good for the city people that have never seen that sort of thing they have got one family, a Gillum family, that cooks scones for three or four days and Yum. <laughs> stews <laughs> on the old fuel stoves, on the old wood stove. That's me nieces and nephews and their families. And then we do the camp oven cooking on a Friday night and on a Saturday we do baked meals.
2: So for those that don't know, what is camp oven cooking? What, what sort of food? Is camp oven cooking?
0: Uh, Well, camp oven cooking can really be anything from stews to baked dinners. But because it's so big, so many people, we cook like 400 meals on a Saturday night, 400 baked meals. So we've got hot water systems turned into ovens and we use them for the baked meals. And on the Friday night, we've got pickled pork and corn meat with all the veggies so we do them in the camp ovens and the big boilers that we've got.
2: And the camp ovens are literally in the, in uh, the
0: camp fire? Yeah, in the, around the camp fire. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got Timmy Kennedy who does camp oven cooking demonstrations. Like he, he does dampers, other things as well. There's dog trials. There's different vintage cars and it's yeah, just a massive turnout. Some people have been going there for as long as it's been going, come back every year. They enjoy it that much.
2: How long has it been running for?
0: Going on 20 years.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. What are some of the other
0: events? There, They do shearing demonstrations from the blade shearing to a push. Someone rides a push bike and they shear with it and they shear on old petrol motors up right up to the new overhead electric stands. So there's it, three generations in the Gillum family that are shearing. We'll give our bit of time, a couple of times while it's on and, yeah, pretty good, pretty interesting.
2: I'm intrigued by push-bike shearing. What do you mean by
0: that? <laughs> well, someone pedals the bike and the back wheel runs the shearing handpiece. It's on a big flexible tube and you you just shear normally with this pedal power pedal power and if the the person put riding the bike slows down well yeah it's nearly stopped (laughs) you got to go fairly fast you got to be fairly fit I think I'd rather be shearing than riding the bike
1: (laughs) (laughs) the event it is such a great escape I think for people from the city to come to the drovers campfire because it really does evoke I guess that bush spirit Even though you're from the bush, do you still love the idea of sitting around a campfire and looking up at the sky and eating a nice hot meal? Do you still love that, Mad Dog?
0: Yeah, I do. It's um, very relaxing and, you know, just on a nice clear night and a bit of moonlight and a few stars and a couple of stubbies or plonk or something, doesn't get any better than that, does it?
1: It doesn't get much better at all. (laughs) Is it a lifestyle, I guess a drover's lifestyle, or in a way, going around to different shearing sheds? Is it something that you enjoy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, en- I enjoyed going around the shearing sheds, different ones, you know, camp there for however long the shed went for and move on to the next one. And yeah, and droving the drover's life, not that I've ever done very much of it, but it was. Um, it was very similar. They were just on the road all the time, they'd do their twelve mile a day and, and then um, yeah, camp overnight and off the next day again and and all they had was their camp ovens and in their in their trucks and their horses. They didn't have no caravans or anything in the early days, it's a bit modern now.
2: Speaking of life as a shearer, how old were you when you started? Sixteen. And what got you into the shearing game?
0: It was pretty good money back then, it was 15 cents a sheep, Uh, so if you're sure 100 sheep, that was $15 for the day, and I think the a lot of people were probably only getting $18 a week back those days, so $15 in one day was a pretty good wage. And then, yeah, there was a lot of work about, a lot of sheep in the area, and we had 31 shearers in Bogabroi when I started and 11 in Barnbar, which is just down the road from Bogabroi. Yeah, everyone had work for at least nine months of the year, and then you'd have your harvest work and sowing wheat crops and that sort of thing, hay cart and wheat cart and all that, so you were pretty well employed all the year.
2: You've shorn at our family property before for a number of years, and my husband tells a story of when he was a young. Younger lad, and you explained to him and made him try the delicacy that is sheep's brains.
0: Yeah, well, the flavour's probably a little bit better than after they've been cooked. They're just as nice and tender and warm. And I got the feeling that if you eat these brains straight out of the head, you might get the chance to think like a sheep and be able to control them better.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delicious. and what's the biggest change you've seen over your lifespan of the shearing industry
0: well I think it's the way the young fellas are taught today when I was learning you'd get a handpiece and the way you'd go and some of the good old shearers would show you a bit but everyone was too busy they were all trying to make a quid, so we were all busy and so you just learnt the best you could, watch other shearers and pick up a bit off them, you know, a few hints and that sort of thing, whereas today they have schools for, them, for the shearers, the young ones, and they're taught properly. They, they're they taught a different way to what we used to shear and they shear a lot more numbers and I think it's easier on their body watching them the way they do it. That is the biggest thing. The rest of the shearing shed, you can't change it because it, shear the sheep, wool comes off, gets processed and, and that's it. But the actual shearer has changed. His technique's changed for the better.
2: It is a funny thing. You know, the agricultural industry is always developing in terms of technologies and machinery and things are becoming a lot less labour intensive. Will that ever happen with shearing or is it always going to be the shearer's job to shear the sheep?
0: Yeah, they'll never replace a shearer. I, I just cannot see it happening. I know I probably shouldn't say that, but with technology and everything else, but I just can't see it working successfully. Like I said, teaching the young boys of good techniques is the biggest change and the best change. And the shearing sheds have changed as far as building goes. Like they've got the raised boards now, where the rouseabouts don't have to bend, and a massive percentage of browseabouts are now women. Which is good, like, and they don't have to bend like in the in the old shearing sheds. Like they're just waist high the board, and yeah, a bit easier on them. Yeah, no, I can't see too much changes from where it is. They've tried for a long time, and nothing's worked really.
2: Yeah, and is it an industry that's hard to entice young people into? It's quite. It can take quite a toll on your body, I would imagine. Shearing, you know, five days a week. Do you see a lot of young people entering the industry?
0: Well, it's surprising because I've been to a few shows um, following my nephew or great nephew. There are a lot of young shearers at those shearing at the shows, which surprised me. But there's a lot of shearing down south in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia. Not as much up our way now as what, what there was or nowhere near as much. I think the mines, a lot of people go to the mine for work because it's permanent work, whereas the shearing's seasonal and they can follow it and they can go overseas now and all that sort of thing and travel about a bit more. But, yeah, I think there'll always be a shortage of shearers. If ever the wool industry really booms again, there'll be a shortage of shearers.
2: And you mentioned your nephew. It is quite a generational type of industry isn't it like if your father was a shearer or you've got an uncle that's a shearer you often find it runs in the family yeah the shearing that's game. True. yeah why is that do yeah.
0: you think I, I think it's um because you just get a feel for it you start off when you're very young and when you realize that you can shear a sheep and how fast you can shear it and, and then the money's there and it's competitive probably that's the main thing is competitive everyone's out having a go at the next bloke next year, you know, and see if you can beat him.
2: So with that competitive nature, lately what are some of the young gun shearers in the shed? How many sheep would they be shearing in a day?
0: Oh, look, I, a lot of them are shearing up around that 250 to 300, which is, well, oh, I know I'll shear sure they're 250, but not as constant as what the young fellas are today. I think they've just got so much better equipment. The hand pieces are a lot thinner to hang on to. It's not as bulky as the old ones. Some of the overhead shearing plants are a lot better than what they were. I'd say that the young fellows are up around that 250 to 300 a lot of them.
2: And what are they making per sheep?
0: A bit over $3. Mm,
2: so you can make a really good living.
0: Mm. Yeah. But it is very hard. They've got slings now that you can get in like like a swing and that supports your back, which is very good.
1: Mad Dog, there is a catch, which is that it's pretty hard. Yakka, how do you, if you've done 50 years of shearing, I'm not sure how old you are now, but how do you stay upright? How do you stay fit? How do you still walk?
0: Well, I don't do any exercises or anything like that, but I never stop. I'm always... If I'm not shearing, and I'm in the garden or out doing something. So I think you just gotta you just gotta be doing something physically in life to keep going. And the more you do the more you keep going, the longer you'll keep going. That's my theory.
1: Are you gonna keep on going?
0: <laughs> uh, for a while.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you must love it though, being in the shed and the atmosphere.
0: I do. Yeah, it's terrific. You get in a good, good shed and you get good people and you have a lot of fun. You start at half past seven in the morning and you work for two hours solid. And everybody in that shear and shed is working. Like there's nothing easy. It, not, not just the shearers, but the rouseabouts and the press and all. Everybody is working hard and they work for two hours, stop for half hour, work for two hours. Stop for an hour, then work for two hours. Stop for half hour, work for two hours, and knock off. And in those eight hours that they've worked, that's that's just hard, flat out work. And you can't have anyone not doing their job because it'll hold. Like if the rouse about's too slow to pick the wool up, well the shearer gets cranky because he can't get his numbers out. And- if the wool roller's not doing his job, well, then the rouse about can't do his job, the board boy, or yeah. So it's, you just rely on each other in that shed. And,
1: hmm. You don't want to let the team down. No. I'm sure some of what happens in a shearing shed stays in a shearing shed, but is there any banter or what was some of the slang shearing shed sayings that you can share with us?
0: I suppose the old ducks on the pond as comes to mind when the. If there's a woman coming to the shed, not so much now because a lot of women work in the shed, but in the old days, if the farmer's wife come to the shed, they'd sing out ducks on the pond. That meant no swearing. <laughs> Good manners. Tar boy, well, that's, that's when you put the fly oil on, the, on a sheep if it's fly blowing or whatever, sing out tar boy.
1: We should ask, of course, about wool as a fibre. Tell me about it.
0: I don't think there's any better fibre than wool. It's um, warm, soft, um, you do anything with it. They tell me the other day they were making the masks for the COVID. And I think they used four, 400 tonne an hour or something of wool making these masks, which is massive, isn't it? That was in Hong Kong, I think. Mm.
1: You mentioned before about the boom. Mm. Were you working as the shearer during that period?
0: No, it was before me. It was in the fifties, and I started in the sixties.
1: Yeah.
0: I can remember my uncle bought a property down the river from Bogabri, and he bought the property in a thousand marina weathers and paid for both in one shearing. I mean wool was a pound a pound. Wow, which was massive Like but there there were thousands, millions of sheep in Australia and Australia literally rode on the sheep's back. A mate of mine was asked at school once what rode on the sheep's back and he was supposed to say Australia and he said a Willie (laughs) Wagtail, Because a Willie Wagtail was always on the sheep's back.
1: (laughs) If you hadn't been a shearer, what else would you have done?
0: Uh, Probably a vet. I would like to have been a vet but I just wasn't quite clever enough. I was a bit too slow going. I would have to stay at school longer. And I didn't go much on school.
1: The life of of a shearer—it's often held in such a special place in Australian bush history.
0: Yeah, I think that movie, Sunday Too Far Away. To me, that was a great movie because it was the shearers' life. He he got home on um, Friday night, and it, and the the story was Friday too tired, Sunday too drunk, Sunday too far away, and that was that was sort of. And that was the life of a shearer when he was, when you were travelling, you know, to camp out sheds where you camped all the week. So you only got your Friday night where you were tired. Saturday you'd go to the pub, meet up with all your mates. Sunday you'd be back on the road heading back out to the and shed again. So, and in those days, or in my early days even, we used to travel anything up to a couple hundred kilometres from home to a shed and others used to go further. I used to go up into Queensland, up to Longreach, and do a season up there, which was good. I loved it up there. It was nice and warm and good sheep.
1: Debbie, your wife, came with you here today. Has she always been very supportive of your mad endeavours?
0: Very supportive. Without her, I wouldn't be doing it. But I don't think there's any to go.
2: (laughs) I don't think we've seen the end of you, Mad Dog. Okay, so in our final segment, we ask each guest if you were creating your ideal postcard of our region, the Narrabri region, firstly, what photo would capture, what snapshot would you put on the front of a postcard to send to people to encourage and entice them to experience the Narrabri region?
0: Like I said earlier, I'd love to see that wool shed, but that'll never happen. So I think the next best thing would be Gin's loop. It's a, it's a beautiful rock. It's, um, yeah, there's just something about it. It's um, four kilometres out of Bogabrai on the Narrabri Road and you drive right past it and there's a graveside there which belonged to some of my old relations. There was a rock inn there, which um, an inn in those days was where they sold alcoholic beverages. It was on the below the Jen's Leap part and then the rivers on the, the road from it. That's a very special spot there, I think.
2: And if you were to write something on that postcard, do you have any secret local tips or travel tips or recommendations for the Bogabri area?
0: Just call in and enjoy yourself. Usually strike a character there somewhere. That's what I like doing when I go to a town or go into a pub and meet the old fellas and, yeah, fellas that could tell a good yarn and
2: come and experience the locals yeah. that make the place.
0: Because they do. They really do. They, You know, you hear some good stories from the oldies.
2: Well, thank you, Mad Dog, for sharing your stories and your story with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast. It has. Thank you, Mad Dog. You're
1: a
0: legend. Thank you very much.
2: And thank you for listening
1: to the Bush Wanderlust podcast. We hope to welcome you to the Narrabri region soon. And a big shout-out to our sponsor, the Narrabri Region Visitor Information Centre. The team there has a treasure trove of knowledge about all things Narrabri, from the pink slug to the yaoi and more. They know all the hidden gems, so call in or head over to www.visitnarrabri.com.au to find out more, or follow the Narrabri Region or Bush Wanderlust podcast on social media. Stay tuned for more podcast interviews and if you enjoyed listening today, please hit subscribe, leave a comment or share with a friend. Hope to catch you next time.